Just James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James, and today, so excited, so fucking excited, we are going to be talking about The Last Exorcism. Hell yeah, this is episode 32. Welcome back, listener, to the Just James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James. Got a different little setup today for recording, so if my audio quality sounds a little bit different, it's not your stereo, it's me. I'm sorry, we'll fix it next time. But today, just got to deal with it. Super excited. We're going to be talking about The Last Exorcism. I have been looking for this film for years. And it's one of those films where I didn't really know how... To Google it, all I could remember is that the ending scene and what it was like and what happened. There's like a cabin, there's a bunch of images or whatever, and there's this huge big fiery ball thing at the end with a demon or whatever. Well, guess what? When you Google that, it brings up every single exorcism type film, bonfire, you know, demon worship type stuff ever. So I couldn't find it. And I thought the movie wasn't that old, but apparently The Last Exorcism came out in two 2010. So once I started doing all this, I thought, wait a minute, I got a bunch of people, a community actually, that I talk to and interact with every single day about horror movies. Let me throw something out there and see if I can get any nibbles. And holy shit, wouldn't you know, Curtis Gould from the Gravely Serious podcast came in clutch and knew exactly what movie I was talking about. So The Last Exorcism came out in 2010. So I'm sure I saw it either that year or not long after that, within a year or two, I probably saw that film. I don't remember how or where, if I saw it in theater or where the fuck I saw it at. But I just remember it was just one of those films where I saw it and was like, this is awesome. And it's not so much that it's really any different from any other film that that is cut from the same cloth, but it's just the way it was done. And the ending for me was just beautifully done. I loved it. I, I loved how it wrapped everything up. And of course, we'll go into all that. But yeah, so Curtis School, thank you so much for pulling this thing out of the deep, dark depths of my brain and help helping me to find this film. And uh, yeah, super excited. So The Last Exorcism came out in 2010, was produced by Eli Roth. It is Eli, right? I think I said Ellie once in an episode and someone called me out on it. I don't really care, but Eli Roth. So he produced it, but he wasn't the one that directed it. So Daniel Stamm is the one who directed it. He also directed 13 Sins, Pray for the Devil, which I think are all supposed to be pretty good. Pray for the Devil looked cool. I remember that, but I haven't seen it. Maybe I'll check it out. But I do know that this particular film, The Last Exorcism, earned over 10 times its budget, which is hilarious because if you look at the reviews and the Rotten Tomato scores and Meta scores or whatever the fuck all that stuff, it doesn't have good reviews. And I think it's going to be one of those films where you either, you either love it or hate it. I think it's kind of cool. Like it's one of those films also where it's cool to hate, if that makes sense. But yeah, the the director killed it. And I looked up something with Eli Roth where he was talking about this film where it's it was billed at the reason why people didn't like it is because it was billed as an exorcism. Obviously, it's called The Last Exorcism, but it's that's not the main focus, and what Eli Roth wanted was a film about relationships and human interactions and relationships and the uncomfortable you know, moments in between with human interaction and, and that kind of stuff that could happen. So that's more what this film is about. However, the end still hits hard with, with horror for me. 
So the writers of this film was uh, Huck Botko and Andrew Gerlin. I'm sure I destroyed that name, but I didn't see anything else that they had done that is 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 notable for me anyway. So I hate to say that. I mean, they, the, this film's written great, but I didn't recognize any of the other stuff. So anyway, moving on. Actors in this film, we have Patrick Fabian, who was Howard Hamlin in Better Call Saul. But even better, he was in a show called Boston Legal. Did anybody watch that show beside me? It was really fucking good. For whatever reason, a show about, you know, upper crust lawyers was good. It was hilarious. It just had a bunch of funny stuff in it. It's almost like it's always sunny in Philadelphia if it was made for TV for, like, wide audiences. It just kind of had that kind of humor to it, if, if I remember right. But, yeah, I ended up watching all of that and even, like, the season finale for whatever reason. Funny show. If you watch that show, let me know in the comments. I'd like to know, be interested if you're uh, in the same age range as me. It's the only way you would have watched that shit. All right, so I don't, I couldn't tell you why it was a good show, but it was. Also, this Patrick dude was in a couple of episodes of Xena Warrior Princess. Oh, man. Xena Warrior Princess. I miss those fucking shows, man. I miss those days. Those are such fucking cool shows. Anyway, all right, we'll move on. He looks very familiar. You'll see him, and, and his face looks really recognizable, but you won't be able to place it. So, I don't know. Maybe you remember it from those shows I mentioned. Who knows? Ashley Bell, she's been in a few things. Nothing really not notable, I guess, which is weird because she looks really familiar, too. In fact, I thought she was the girl from the Harry Potter movies, the one who is supposed to be the weird girl, if that's possible in a Harry Potter film. Um... That's who I thought she was, but apparently it's not. So I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know. So anyway, they both kind of just have that large, like black, like solid black eye, kind of doughy eyed look. I don't know. That's why they're familiar. Anyway, she does an awesome job in this film. But the one I want to talk about is, I guess she was kind of a female lead, sort of. Uh, her name is Iris Barr, and she plays the filmmaker in this. It, so this film is like a documentary style film. And, uh, yeah, she's, her whole list of things that she has done are, are crazy. I mean, she's definitely leading female, uh, actor material. I don't know why she hasn't been in more stuff because she even looks like a leading lady. I mean, she just, she hits all the marks. I'd love to see her in something else in a different role, but it said that she majored in neuropsychology and religious studies. She served two years in the Israeli military, uh, even making sergeant. She conducted brain research at Brown University. She performed for the United Nations as a comedian. I mean, holy shit, right? I mean, she looks like, I, I mean, shit, on, on, even on paper, she's a badass. So not to mention, you know, what she did in the film or whatever, but yeah, all, all the way around. I'd love to see her in more stuff, which she hasn't been. And anyway, yeah, so so moving on, um, the son in this film is played by Caleb Jones, who played Banshee in X-Men, if you know who that is. And also, he was in the film Get Out, which I still haven't seen. Damn it, shame on me. I want to see that film so bad. I just need to bite the bullet and do it. It's one of those where it's a film that I know is going to be good, but it's been hyped up so much that it's it's ruined the experience I'm going to have with it. So I think I'm just giving it time to settle and where I'm not thinking about it and I can enjoy it without already reading all these reviews and seeing all these clips that have just fucked the film for me. So, all right, enough about all that. Let's get into it. All right, so I'm going to do my best to cover as much as I can about this film, but I don't want it to drag on for too long. However, there's just a lot of elements to this as the story goes on, and some things, if you leave them out, aren't going to really make a whole lot of sense, but, you know, I'll do my best. Anyway, we're going to start out with Cotton Marcus, who is a preacher's son, and he's an evangelist who writes plays and shorts films. He's very 
uh, theatrical in his sermons and bets he even bets the documentary film crew that he can preach a banana bread recipe and then it cuts to a scene of him doing exactly that and he's trying to say that the religious fervor and all that that gets worked up in the church that you can pretty much say whatever because people aren't really listening anyway he's a really great character so it shows him doing his thing a little bit it cuts to his dad who pulls this you know, old looking book out and he says, Hey, there's only a couple of these left in the entire world. And it's basically a demon catalog. And not only is it a catalog, but it tells you how to exercise them. And he goes on to brag to say he's completed uh, nearly 150 exorcisms as his time as a preacher. So we're already kind of getting this backstory of who these people are, what they're doing. And you think that the son is all about it, even though he's kind of, you know, cavalier with how he talks about religion. But then... We find out very soon that his motivation for all this is to actually prove that exorcisms are bullshit. So throughout a series of interviews, again, this is all shot as a mockumentary type thing, I guess is, is what you would call it. It's, it looks like a real documentary about him trying to prove that these things aren't real. He talks about Christianity. Cotton does. He talks about Christianity saying that Jesus exercises demons. And if you believe in God, then you also have to believe in demons. So I think him saying, him thinking that exorcisms are crap is him also sort of admitting that he doesn't really believe in demons, meaning he also doesn't really believe in God. Now, there's a lot of subtext throughout this whole film. You can really dive in deep and read in between the lines a lot, or you can just enjoy it as a straightforward horror film. So whichever mode you want to get into before you watch it, you know, go at it. Now, this is going to be based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Shout out to Baton Rouge because that's where I'm originally from. Uh, got a lot of family out there and stuff, so it was kind of cool. Even though I will say none of them really have Baton Rouge, Louisiana accents, I don't even think they really try. It, at least I didn't notice. But there is another uh, interesting part in here where Cotton says that he exercised his first demon at age 10. So again, him being a preacher's son, you know that this has been his whole life since he was a kid. He's enjoyed doing it and he's loved doing it. However, he read a story in a newspaper about an exorcism gone wrong where they put a plastic bag or something over this kid, this fucking kid's head, and he ends up suffocating to death. And after he read that, he said that he had a child around the same age and his son is deaf. And I think the kid that died ended up, you know, uh, had autism or something like that. And... To him, you know, these people murdered this kid and he was scared and he died scared and all these people thought, he even acknowledges, like, these people thought they were doing the right thing. In their eyes, they were trying to save his soul and all this, so he doesn't really blame them, but he does blame the church for pushing this shit on everyone and getting people into that kind of religious fervor that he was talking about earlier that can cause, you know, well-to-do people to actually murder someone thinking that they're doing the right thing. And he goes on to say that, you know, he had nightmares about this and pretty much almost, he's almost sort of saying that he was kind of called to come out and prove that all this is BS. Which is interesting because the way the movie plays out, maybe he was. Maybe it was a test for him in his, you know, the way religion works and the way the movie ends, that maybe that was his test and that Jesus was calling him to come and do this stuff to like, oh, okay, you want to prove it wrong? Go ahead. Well, guess what? The real motherfucker and they're going to kill you. I don't, I don't know if that's how Jesus talks, but... Anyway, let's let's move on. And a key thing here I don't want to forget is that when Cotton, after seeing this story, he saw that the Vatican was going to open an exorcist academy. And that's when he was like, okay, I've got to do something about this before they just start sending out schools, you know, of all these people who are going to go out and possibly kill someone else just by, you know, doing what they think is right. 
I do want to say about Cotton and the filmmakers and his dad and everyone that's involved in this film, the casting. I, I don't know if people think about casting for movies or picking locations to film or all that, but the casting on this is spot on. 100% believable, all the people and how they look in this film. I mean, it really has a layer of just 100% believability believability to it. I will say Cotton's every now and then gets a little cheesy. It's sort of his character, but he kind of breaks outside the lines, I think, sometimes. But as far as the casting goes, fucking spot on. So how does Cotton decide who to take this documentary film crew on? Well, he says he gets letters all the time. He just takes one randomly right off the top of his stack and reads it. And he goes on to say they all say the same thing. We got farm animals dead or someone sick or whatever. And sure enough, as he reads through the letter, it's like we've got cattle that's gone, that's that's been, you know, mutilated or whatever. And so-and-so is sick. And I, I think my young daughter is possessed by a demon. He's like, see? You can call it. So they drive down to the location of where this is at, and they stop in the local town, talk to a couple of people, and he pretty much, again, remember, he's trying to prove that all, all this shit is, you know, BS, and it's all just hysteria. So he talks to some local people in town to ask them about, hey, where's the demon at? Where'd the UFOs land? And just kind of... But he's fucking with them, really. But they have an answer. And they 100% believe it. You know, some people are like, oh, well, that's over here. Oh, you're talking about this family. I'm telling you right now, that's where the devil lives. So... They're kind of building this case, but we know that we're watching a horror film. So when we hear this stuff, he's kind of being, you know, nonchalant about it. But we know that this is actually sort of building our base for what we're about to get into. So they're on their way to the Sweetser family. And they, you know, someone tells them directions to get there. And it's this big, long drive out into the sticks is what it looks like. And on their way down there, Cotton and his crew run across someone it's, it's a young kid, and he seems real nice at first. You know, he stops, their vehicles stop, and they back up and start talking to each other. The kid gets out, and it's a little weird at first, and the kid is supposed to look like he's from the sticks. He's all dirty and shit, and they ask him for directions to the Sweetser house. That's what they're looking for, and they answering a letter or whatever, and the kid looks like he's about to give them some advice, you know, like, oh, yeah, you're looking for that. Okay, here's what you're going to want to do. You're you're going to want to go back until you saw the last turn, and then you're going to want to, you know, turn the vehicle around and go this way. And he's like, and then you're going to want to go back to where you, you came from and, you know, stay the fuck out of here. So it's a really awkward moment where, you know, even uh, Cotton is just like, oh, okay, whatever. So he starts driving off, and... The film crew, one of them is just like, well, that was weird. Well, as she's saying that, this huge mud ball hits the back of their car. And then another one. So you find this kid's, you know, throwing stuff at him or whatever. So they're undeterred. They go on to the Sweetser house. And Cotton meets Lewis Sweetser, who is the father who originally wrote the letter. And as he's talking to him, the truck pulls up. And you realize that the kid that was throwing mud balls at him is the Sweetser son. And he comes up to him while they're talking. He whispers something in the dad's ear like, they got cameras, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the dad looks up. Well, obviously, the fucking guy's had a camera the whole time. Anyway, he looks up. He's like, why do we got cameras? Why are we recording this? And it's all very uncomfortable. But the dad kind of goes along with it. And they, you know, he's showing him stuff. He's showing him around the farm or whatever. He goes to show him some of the cows that have been ripped open and cut open. He's like, my, my 16-year-old dog, I think she's 16. Yeah, she's 16 when all this is going on, but her mother died of cancer when she was 14. That's what it is. So anyway, the cow's all ripped up, and he's like, you know, your daughter did this. He's like, well, I didn't see her do it, but, you know, in the morning she's covered in blood, and she doesn't remember anything. And so every time, what's cool about this film is as it 
every time they show something where the dad is, you know, these people believe this stuff, it'll cut to an interview with Cotton where he's explaining like, hey, this is very common, what he's saying here, this happens every time, and he's kind of giving you the science, and that's what this film is, uh, one of the through lines of this is kind of science versus religion uh, sort of background in this film. And honestly, I don't really think it's t- it's not preachy or anything. It's not telling you one way or the other what to believe. It's just a horror film that's just pointing some shit out. Cotton sees the son at some other point during all this, and he's kind of asking him what he thinks about all of it. And the son just pretty much says, well, I think my dad's a superstitious drunk. That's what I think. And then he just straight up, and I don't know how old this kid is. He doesn't look that old, 16, 17 or something. Cotton's a full-grown you know, man with a family or whatever. And he just tells Cotton straight up, if you hurt my sister... I'm going to hurt you. And he says it more than once. And he's like, I don't care if the cameras are rolling or not. You you do something to her and I'm going to hurt you. I was like, damn, you know, this kid ain't no fucking, you know, shit. Some swamp justice. All right. So there's a little bit of drag here in the film where they're just kind of set up some, some framework for everything that's going to happen. We finally get to work and Cotton puts Nell is the daughter. So that's going to be the person who is potentially possessed by whatever demon. So uh, Cotton and Nell, just remember those two names. So Cotton puts Nell's feet in a thing of water and he starts doing a bunch of, you know, like checking her like a medical person would or whatever. And he puts her feet in this water and all of a sudden the water starts bubbling up, you know, just kind of this bubbly, smoky shit starts happening to the water when her feet are in there. And that's when Cotton's like, you know, Sir, your daughter is possessed. We need, you know, this this is this is it. We are going to do an exorcism. Well, after all this happens, the son comes up to Cotton and he's all smiles and he's buddy buddy with him and he's like, "You're a fraud." And Cotton's like, "Excuse me, son." And he's like, "You're a fraud." He goes, "I saw you put something in the water. Everything's cool now. We're we're good. Don't worry, I won't tell anyone." And then just walks off. So again, there's this weird uncomfortable relationship where you're just like, "What the fuck is going on?" I just love it. I just love it. It's such it's so good. Now, to me, it is a little weird because if the point of all of this is Cotton is trying to disprove that demons and exorcism and all this stuff isn't real, then why is he trying to sell it so hard to the family? I don't know. I I think maybe there's a little bit of a disconnect there because what he's actually trying to do is just go through the whole thing and show you that it's crap. I don't think his intention was to ever come out to the family. He just wants to help them get through it, you know, even if it's just mental work or whatever, and he helps them that way. That's what he's going to show. Like, see, there was never a demon. This is how all this works. It's the same every time I go out here. But instead, he's just super hard selling. I mean, he's going through all the motions that he normally does. He's got the sizzling water saying, sir, we got to do this. And I, I thought that part was a little strange, but it, it doesn't ruin the film or nothing. All right, so Cotton goes into his book. He starts flipping through his little demon book that we saw earlier in the film. And he tells the dad that this, he believes that the demon that is possessing his daughter is Abilam. And I didn't look up Abilam to see if it's a real demon. I'm going to assume that if you looked it up, it would be some, you know, canon, I guess, for actual demon stuff, just because of who's involved in the film. Anyway, he goes on to tell him that death is the only end to someone possessed by this. And so the dad, of course, is freaking out. Because you got to understand, the dad, he does look like an emotional drunk. He just looks torn to pieces because... Since the death of his wife, he took all of his children out of school and had been homeschooling him on top of that. You can tell that he looks like a drunk. And so the stress of all this is just killing him. And now he thinks that he's, you know, he's lost his wife and now he's about to lose his daughter too. So he's just losing all, you know, he's just losing his shit. All right. So we hear about Abilam and he goes on to show him a picture of this you know, fierce, badass looking demon thing. And he's in this huge pit of fire and he's like, this is Abilam. This is who's, you know possessing your daughter or whatever and 
we cut to a scene where Cotton is setting some tricks to sell the exorcism. So he picks a room that he's going to do the exorcism in, and it's almost like a like a magic show. He's got all these devices like a cross that smokes. He sets up some fishing wire to make shit move. He sets up motors and stuff under the bed to make it shake and he's kind it's kind of cool he's got these little rings with a battery in it so when he touches you with it you can feel a little bit of an electric shock and so he's going through this whole charade this whole show song and dance of exorcism and of course the flip side of this is the family 100 percent believes that all this is real of course except the son we don't think so cotton brings the family in he tells the girl to lay down on the bed nell he tells her to lay down on the bed and he performs his exorcism and it is super over the top borderlines cheesy but i guess that's what the point he's trying to prove and it cuts to the scene after it's all done and he's counting a a shit ton of money and it looks like a lot of money for you know the where he's at and the people that he's dealing with it looks like a lot it'd be a lot of cash to them and the dad is just sitting there you know like so grateful so thankful thank you so much we appreciate it so much and i thought that was kind of weird that he was taking the money because you know again He's not a great dude or anything like that, but if the whole point of this was to disprove the demon, exorcism, all that kind of stuff, why are you taking these fucking people's money, man? I thought, you know, you're just a con man at this point, and, uh, you know, an honest con man, would you would you consider that? Because he's doing it for the documentary, so it's not like he's trying to hide it. But then we find out later by a phone call that his son is has hearing aids, and he's he's deaf or, or has something to where he can't hear, and it it is very expensive for his treatments or whatever they are. And that's why he's taking the money. And he says, you know, there's no health insurance involved when you're a preacher and you're doing all this shit. So he takes money where he can get it. All right. So after they thank everyone and they, they go to leave the cre- the, the crew leaves, cotton leaves, everyone leaves. And he says, Hey, you know, we're going to go stay at a hotel tonight. And in the middle of the night, cotton fucking wakes up and nail is just in his room. Now they don't show it. The camera crew comes up there and Nell is just chilling in his room. And he's like, I have no idea how the fuck she got here. I just woke up and she was standing here in my room. I don't know how she got in. And then you find out they're like five miles away from the home and Nell doesn't drive or anything. So they, they're trying to figure out how the hell she get out here. And she looks super spaced out. And this is going to be the first time in the film where you really get the, the heebie jeebies, you know, where you're like, Oh shit. And, and it, it does take a while to get to this point, but it's kind of the flip from documentary to, all right, now we're finally starting to roll into an actual horror film. So one member of the camera crew, I can't remember what her name is in the film, but Iris, who I talked about earlier, she is trying to console Nell and try to figure out what's going on. She even gave her a, like a sweet pair of the red Doc Martens when they were over there, you know, just being nice to her and stuff. So she goes over to Nell when she's in this weird state and is trying to comfort her. And what does Nell do? Well, she starts doing some demon shit. She starts like trying to take her clothes off and like trying to lick Iris and just, it's very odd. It's not sexy or anything by any means. It's just very awkward and, and uncomfortable. Cause again, she's 16 and it's fucking weird. But anyway, so Cotton tries to call the dad and he's blowing his phone up. Dad's not answering the phone. So that's kind of weird. We don't understand why that's happening. And they're like, fuck it. We, we got to take her to a hospital because again, Cotton, if nothing else, he's doing this because he doesn't want kids to be hurt or killed because of this BS, you know, demon stuff. So he's like, we've got to take her to a hospital and, you know, get her some mental help and figure out what in the hell is going on. So they go to the hospital. The dad ends up coming by the next morning, and apparently he didn't get any of the phone calls, so they kind of just let that slide by. But that's another part of the weird, you know, demon-y haunting stuff is that the phone calls never went through. So Cotton begs the dad to let the girl get psychic 
pediatric help. He had tried to talk to the nurses and they're like, hey, you're not the dad. You can't, you know, she's underage. You can't do any of this stuff. We need the dad's permission to get her a mental evaluation and all that kind of stuff. The dad gets there and he is 100% like, nope, no, no doctors, no quacks, no nothing like that. My girl doesn't need you know, medical help. She needs religious help. She needs God's help. And that's the only way to save this. And he is, you know, full on. And at first you think, well, maybe he's just like a religious zealot kind of thing or whatever. But there is a small scene where the dad is saying, hey, my wife, that's all she had was doctors around her for three years and they couldn't do shit for her. They couldn't save her life. They couldn't do anything. And you, preacher man, Cotton, told me that death is the only end to this demon possession. So these doctors couldn't save my wife from cancer. I'm sure as fuck not going to trust them with, you know, the life and death situation that I find my daughter in. So, oh, shit. I thought that was a fucking hammer drop right in the middle of the film. And they they just try to blow by it. But to me, you know, this... What Cotton's done is he's painted himself in this corner, you know, using religion. So he was trying to point out all the, you know, the fallacies and all this is wrong or whatever. And this is all just BS. But by playing into it, he's painted himself in the corners. Because what's he going to do now? Come out and just be, hey, I'm a fraud. I was just fucking with you. Thanks for all the money, whatever. No, he can't. Well, the dad's 100% in. So it's too late. He's a drunk. He's starting to get pretty aggressive. It's starting to get a little scary. So, yeah, it we're, we're cranking up. Finally. And another important part, too, is now Cotton feels like he is the person who is going to get this kid hurt or killed, which is exactly what he didn't want to do. But the only difference is he wasn't doing it in hopes that this is really something that's going to work. He was doing it just to get money and to prove that it's bullshit. So now it's like, well, who's the better person? The people that put the plastic bag over the kid's head thinking that that's what Jesus wanted them to do or him who was doing it to prove that it's all bullshit. Well, they both end in the same way. So I don't know. Like I said, there's a whole lot of through lines through here. There's a whole lot of between the lines kind of stuff that you can read in this film. But, you know, I both ways, it's still cool to me. All right, so Cotton, he goes to a local preacher to ask for help with the dad. The reason being, since he's so religious, he's like, I need a local guy to tell this dad that he needs to get this girl some mental help, that it's not all about Jesus. We got to get her some actual help because he's going to do something to hurt her. And he doesn't believe me because I'm just this out-of-towner, you know, high-fluting preacher guy. So from this point on, the film is going to kind of, you know, go into overdrive and really just you know, nail it home here at the end for me. So Cotton goes to the local preacher. He tells him, hey, dude hasn't been here in two years. And as a matter of fact, when he left, it was pretty violent. He didn't hit me or anything, but he was scary. And it was almost come to blows or whatever. So Cotton's like, well, shit, that's not going to help out. He goes back to the house and he finds the son has this huge gash on his face. And they're rushing him to the hospital. And we find out that Nell cut his ass with a prison style across the face with a knife. So... Cotton runs over. He's trying to figure out what's going on. The son hands him a piece of paper, and Cotton looks at it real fast, and then he's like, all right, yeah, you guys go to the hospital. We'll stay here with Nell. And we find out that the note says, don't leave Nell alone with my dad. So Cotton and his crew now are alone with Nell in the house, and they decide they're just going to stay with her all night because, you know, the kid, whatever, they're at the hospital for whatever. Uh, later on that night, they start to hear a baby crying from upstairs. No one is upstairs but Nell, but they hear like an infant crying. They go upstairs, and what do they find? They find Nell standing in the middle of the hallway, your typical creepy, like, head down, hair covering your face. You're just fucking standing there in the dark, and it's all creepy as shit. And then she just turns when they talk to her and slowly walks into what we find out is a bathroom. She goes in the bathroom, she leans in front of this tub, 
And all of a sudden, she it looks like she's drowning the shit out of something. Like, just holding it underwater and, like, thrashing. And it looks like something's thrashing under the water. And they're like, what the fuck's going on? They grab her. They pull her off. And they find out. They grab. There's, like, a baby in the bathtub. Well, they pull it out. Whoop. It's not a baby. It's just a baby doll. Right? But still, they know that they heard crying. And they ask Nell, like, what was that noise? Who was up here? Whatever. So, again, our creep factor shooting up. We know we're about to get in some weird stuff. And the crew ends up replaying the video and she is, they hear Nell speaking Latin, which Cotton knows because he's a preacher's son, so he knows all this Latin stuff. I don't think they ever tell you what it says, though, if I remember that correctly, which was interesting. So as they go into Nell's room to ask her a little more about what's going on, they see all these pictures of themselves and they're just like dismembered and they're bleeding, they're fucking headless. Cotton is in a big fire pit holding a cross and all this crazy stuff. And the camera turns on Nell. Or, or, I'm sorry. So, they see all that, and, you know, the camera dude's kind of getting spooked. He's like, hey, man, this is fucked up. It's getting a little weird. I think it's time for us to leave and just leave these people to do whatever the hell it is they're going to do. And, of course, in true horror movie fashion, Cotton's like, nah, dude, we got to just chill out and see what's happening. We don't want this girl to get hurt. Let's just let's just go to sleep. Because that's what everyone does. And weird shit's going on. Let's, let's go to sleep. It's like in Blair Witch and all that stuff. They're like, hey, man, everyone's pretty tired. Let's go to sleep. Man, fuck you. There's ghosts in this house. Demons. Weird shit in the woods. You know, sticks cracking and stuff at night. Whatever. People yelling. Dude, I ain't going to sleep. Get the fuck out of here. Anyway. Sorry. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So, they go to sleep. Camera turns back on. We find out it's not anyone from the camera crew, it's Nell. And what is she doing? Well, she's going out to the barn to pay some of these animals a little visit, right? She goes out there, and she sees the kitty cat. What does she do to the kitty cat? She takes that camera and beats it to death. And so you see the lens, you know, like smashing into this cat. This cat gets all jacked up. The lens is covered in blood, and it's cracked. Shows Nell walk back into the house. She walks upstairs, and you see Cotton laying on the couch asleep. And she goes over to him and, you know, she's breathing all weird or whatever. And then she lifts the camera so you know she's about to smash his head in like she did that cat. And the the camera person comes over there and uh, Iris, I can't remember her damn name. But she comes over there and she's like, you know, Nell. And she snaps her out of it and she grabs her. And they take Nell and they lock her in a room, which is what the dad was doing before. Which, you know, there's a scene where they go to get her and they find out the door's been locked from the outside. So this is something the dad's been dealing with, whether he told him or not. He's been locking her in a room. Well, they go downstairs to talk about all the stuff that's going on, replace the lens on the camera, and they find out on the answering machine, if for, for heaven, heaven forbid there's someone that doesn't know what a fucking answering machine is, but there's this thing in your house when people had house phones, and it was just a tape recorder, and when people call, they could leave a message on it, so that's what they're doing. They're playing the answering machine, the tape, and it's the doctor saying that, hey, some blood results came in, and we find out one way or the other... The, the point is, we find out that Nell is pregnant. So she's pregnant. Of course, the team's first reaction is that the dad's been fucking raping her. And that's why she's pregnant. And that's why all this stuff is going on. She's not possessed. She's just possessed by her dad's seed, I guess. You know, all this, you know, he's a fucking drunk and he's been doing all this stuff. So the crew is just like, hey, let's just get her and get the hell out of here. It's the best thing we can do for her. And of course, Cotton is like, well, I don't know if we should do that just yet. So, for whatever reason, they wait for the dad to get back, and the dad, when he gets back, Cotton tells him, like, hey, she's pregnant, and the dad is like, of course she is, because you already told me this that this Abalom demon will impregnate your daughter, and death is the only way out, and the dad starts begging 
Cotton for another exorcism. And, you know, Cotton at this point doesn't want to play into it because he's like, God, we're going to get this poor girl killed. This is exactly what I didn't want to do. But the dad is saying, do it. And gets a gun and is like, if you don't exercise this demon from my daughter, I'm going to do it the only way that you told me I could, which was death. And it gets to this real tense type moment and the dad's just like all right you got if you're not gonna do the exorcism you got five minutes to leave or you're gonna be trespassers on my property and pretty much i'm gonna kill her and kill you kill everyone in this house to make sure this demon doesn't take our souls so given this ultimatum cotton agrees to try again and they do it with Nell, and she's chained up in the barn and this is kind of the scene that you if you saw this movie in the past or whatever you probably remember this is the scene that sold it to everyone that it was going to be like a true exorcism film. So they got Nell. She's chained up in the barn. Everyone's in there. And this time, Nell speaks as the demon. And she does some kind of twisty body, you know, your typical exorcism weird stuff where the body's all, you know, contortioned out and it's twisted all weird. And there is an actual scene where as she's talking as the demon and she tells Cotton, you know what, I'll leave this girl alone if you can just shut the fuck up for 10 seconds. And you see him like mulling it over like he's thinking about it. Why would you not just be like, yeah, of course, sure, 10 seconds, you got it. Anyway, he finally agrees to it. And, you know, it's one of those tense moments where you're just like, all right, in your head, you know, you're counting, okay, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. Well, as you're starting to do that, Nell puts her hands up and she starts counting on her fingers. And when, it, but with every second, like one She'll break that finger. Two, she breaks that finger. And, you know, it's pretty gnarly scene. So, of course, Cotton can't handle that. He freaks out. He can't keep quiet. And he ends up talking. And the demon gets a great big laugh out of this. And it's hilarious. And it's all nuts. And everything crazy is going on. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Nell, as the demon, asks Cotton if she wants, or if he wants, a blowing job. I'll do something, Daddy. Reverend, how about a blowing job? Yeah. And no, I'm not saying that wrong. That's how it's said in the film. And it's important because this strikes Cotton as a man who is no stranger to a blowjob. You know, it strikes him as odd. And he asks her, you know, what did you say? And she says it again. And she's making this weird face, which is kind of a funny face. You'll know what I'm talking about when you see it. And he pretty much says this is a sign for him that she's just like playing around like she's just doing this and why because he says a demon would know the right way to say blow job not blowing job blowing job is what a 16 year old girl who doesn't really know what that is but is maybe it's happened or something like that similar has happened before and she's trying to be shocking or whatever and he calls her out on it and when he says it you watching it you're like oh yeah you're like oh shit this is great yeah that makes perfect sense and right about the time you think that, it cuts to a scene where Cotton comes out of Nell's room. He tells the dad a story that Nell told him, which is that she got screwed up when her mom died and she ended up getting pregnant by a boy at a diner and that she was just ashamed. And this is just all mental anguish from all those things kind of snowballing together. And now she's pregnant and all that. And that's why she's acting out in the way that she is. Doesn't explain the baby noises and how she managed to eviscerate a whole fucking cow, but there it is. So the dad doesn't really want to believe it at first, but he finally says okay, and Cotton decides to call the local preacher back because originally the local preacher guy was like, hey, if you can get him to agree to it, I'll come to his house and talk to him, but if you can't, I'm not going to just go over there and get punched in the face because this guy doesn't want me there, right? So he calls the local preacher guy back because the dad does agree. Okay, yeah, it's fine. Have him come over and pray with us, and we'll just try to deal with all this stuff together because now he knows that she's pregnant. She's got, you know, 
uh, impregnated by some dude and whatever. It's all just things. And, he, you know, he's about to crack. He, he is not equipped to raise a 16-year-old girl and his son and the death of his wife or whatever. Like, this dude's already on suicide's door kind of thing. And so, yeah, it all, it all makes sense is what, is what I'm saying. So the preacher guy comes over, we get introduced to them again, and the crew leaves all feeling pretty good about how they had cracked this code. And you, as you're watching it, you're like, this better not be the end of this fucking movie, because I swear to shit, it, it will suck. You know, you do something so good, and then you end it like this, with rainbows and, and sunshine and birds singing. I don't think so. All right, so we cut to the crew. On the way out, they end up seeing the diner that Nell said the, the guy works at, and they decide, hey, let's stop and get some footage of this guy and interview him for the you know for the uh, documentary and all that kind of stuff. They go in, they find the dude, and they talk to him, and they find out that he admits to them that, hey, not only is this story false, it's super false because, surprise, I'm gay. It's just not something I'm interested in. You know, she's certainly not my type and just, you know, I I'm gay. I don't like women, whatever. And so they kind of have this shock moment like, what the fuck? Oh, what the fuck? Dude, no way. How can this be? How can this girl who kills animals and drowns baby dolls be lying to us about getting pregnant and who impregnated her? But you do wonder like, well, okay, well, why is she lying? And I think even one of the film uh, crew says that like, well, why would she lie to us? And Cotton says she wanted us out of the house. So they, he's like, we're going back. And of course, the film crew is like, the fuck we are. We're leaving. <laughs> Also, in the conversation with this kid, it's important, to, it's important to note that the boy said, I only met her one time, and it was at a party at the preacher's house. What preacher, you say? It's the preacher who, the local preacher who they had gone and talked to earlier, also the one who is now at the house with Nell and the father, who they kind of got into it. And you almost don't catch it. And it's kind of just, there's a couple of scenes like this that are really key and important, but they just try to slip them by you real fast. I, I think maybe that's because where it's supposed to be documentary style, that's kind of how conversation works. Not everyone is waiting to hit you with this major punchline. Not everything is super important. But if you're listening to what people are saying, then, you know, you pick up on these little clues. They're just like, they're, they're breadcrumbs is what they are, but they turn out to be really important when you take in the film as a whole. But yeah, so the key from that is that all these kids were having a party at this preacher's house. And you assume it's like house party style drinking, you know, people having sex. She's doing blowing jobs or whatever she says, you know. So the crew and Cotton, they go back to the house to see what's up, to confront everyone about this. And by the time they get there, it's already dark. They get to the house. And they think maybe, like, you can kind of see there's something going on out in the woods somewhere, but you can't really tell. Again, it just kind of blows past you. They go to the door, no one answers, and they just decide to let themselves into the house where this dude was just going to shoot them like a day ago for being there. And this is the part that was so memorable for me. For whatever reason, it just stuck out. It's one of those things where I was just like, God, oh, that was so fucking cool. Because they go into this house, and this thing is covered in satanic symbols i mean everywhere the walls the ceiling the fucking dead cat the couch the toilet bowl whatever everything is covered in these satanic symbol like obviously satanic ritual type symbols so many so that you know one person could not have done this so was this supernatural was this a bunch of people what in the hell is going on and where is everybody so again there's that moment where the crew is just like hey it's time to leave and they go outside to leave and they start hearing screaming in the woods and cotton is like that's nail that's nail so, you know, she's, he's, you know, again, his whole thing is he doesn't want some kid to die because of this shit. That's kind of his driving force. It's why he's sticking around, which kind of gets a little loose near the end. Like it's not really believable near the end of the film. Doesn't really ruin it, but I'm just saying his motivation wasn't strong enough. I felt to do what all continued to happen through this film, but fuck it, whatever. So they go out into the woods. 
because they can see this like bonfire thing going on out there. And when they get, they finally get to the, the fire and where the screaming's coming from, Nell is on the altar and you can tell she's tied down to this altar and the local preacher is sitting there. Well, his assistant is sitting in between her legs and she's got blood all over her arms and you can see that she is yanking this baby out of her. But she pulls it out and guess what? It doesn't fucking look human. It looks like some kind of weird skeleton, bony worm, uh, who knows what thing. She yanks it out. She grabs it, hands it to the guy that's standing over top of her head in a hood and the, he you know, he, he grabs it from her and just chucks it in the fire. And we find out that the dude that is in the hood who chucked the baby into the fire as soon as it came out of her is the local preacher guy. What? So not only do we see this, but then we see, because at this point you think the dad's in on it. Nope. Dad's over there blindfolded, tied to a fucking tree. So he's just having all kinds of, a, he's having a really bad couple of months. So after you see the dad and he's he's blindfolded and tied into this tree and we got all these people standing around and the flame starts to grow and get huge. I'm talking like, you know, 60, 70 feet tall. It starts acting in a way that's not really natural. And you think whether they put it in there or not, it kind of looks like there's a figure in those flames. You can almost make out a shape maybe. And again, you got the, you know, the hairs on your arms are starting to stand up and stuff. It's getting really good. And as Cotton sees this and he sees Nell tied to this, he has this moment of revelation. He decides, he, he gets his cross that he had with him. And again, this is a cross that's got like smoke pellets in it and whatever. And he decides he's going to walk out there. So that's exactly what he does. He decides to come out from his cover in the tree line and starts holding his cross up at this big, huge flame that may or may not sort of kind of have a demon thing in it. And he's yelling, you know, like, you will not take her soul or whatever. You do not have permission and all this kind of stuff. And to me, this part of the film, thinking back on it, not when I'm watching it, because this is when everything ratchets up. But for the film itself, you know, he has a complete transition. He goes from preacher's son to being excited about it, to thinking it's all crap to is this a test by you know what he believes is God and all this and then he is tested and then he finds out that hey guess what this shit is real so he's rededicated because he still knows all this stuff he's still good at what he does he still knows all the scripture and all that shit and he's just re-energized to go out there and he feels it's his job to save her his whole thing was he was trying to prove it was all B BS and save her through science and now he's pushed to the point to where hey the only way to save her is through religion so again you got this kind of battle between science and religion and what's going on and yeah it's just kind of ended up here so he walks out towards that flame of course it's all shot by the cameraman so he sees this and he's like fuck this i'm out because all the hooded people now they know they're out there they split and they're like get them you know, you can hear different people yelling in the woods, get him, kill that bitch, and blah, 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 and all this stuff. So basically, the camera crew ends up getting picked off one by one, and they end up getting killed like the pictures that Nell had hanging in her room. So she had already saw their death. It was already, you know, I guess prophesied or whatever in those pictures. So we know the chick's getting dismembered with a, a with an axe. So she gets all chopped up, and the last remaining guy, he's running with the camera. Now, on his picture, it showed him straight up decapitated and blood squirting out of his neck or whatever. So you're just kind of waiting like, okay, it's going to happen, but when is it going to happen? So he runs off. He ends up tripping over something or stands up or something like that. And he turns around and who is it? Well, it's the son. So now we just know that the son is a part of this cult. The dad wasn't obviously because he's tied up and fucked up. Now, I don't know if she's in on it or not, but you know, she is possessed or they made a They made a second one of these films, which might explain a little more. And I know Nell is in that one too. So maybe she is a part of it. Who the hell knows? But the son is, and he's got this children of the corn looking, you know, sickle thing in his hand, swipes it across the guy's neck. And we assume chopped his head off. 
And we don't ever know what happens to Cotton. Did he live? Did he die? Maybe it explains it in the second film. I don't know because I haven't seen it. I had to pay $3 to watch this on Amazon, even though I pay for fucking Prime. But, you know, we complain about that all the time. But that's pretty much that. That's that's the end of the film. Yeah, that's the end of it. We don't know what happened to Cotton other than he started walking towards the flame. Now, the pictures on Nell's wall have him just burning in that flame. But, you know, who knows? Whatever. But something I did want to say, the scene of... I just love the cult stuff when it's done really well. I mean, it was freaky and this scene though it reminds me of have you ever heard of okay let's let's put on some some creepy cult you know secret society hat and check this shit out have you ever heard of the bohemian club cult shit have you heard of this like apparently they burn human effigies to this giant wooden god carved owl thing that's out in the forest and they've been doing it for like 150 years and it's a bunch of goddamn I'm sure it's fucking a bunch of perverts and elites and pieces of shit probably that live in a whole nother uh, tier of society than the rest of us but it is scary as shit I mean I'm talking like presidents and shit and you know world leaders and all these kind of people that just live in a whole nother realm of existence than the rest of us right the rest of us peons but yeah just check that out look it up it's called the bohemian club there's all kinds of shit written out there about it you can see all the different people that have been involved in it and all the weird stuff they do and then you can look up all the conspiracy theory stuff that goes along with it and all the major events and cataclysmic stuff that's happened and who was involved and what it has to do with this creepy owl god cult shit man it's crazy but either way, hey man, that's the film. I hope you had a good time listening to this. I tried to rattle it off as fast as I could. Like I said, I know re- recording quality is a little different this time. If you heard my dog barking in the background, uh, I'm not going to apologize for that because he is a chonky boy and I love him to death. So, you know, you're welcome if you heard him bark. But uh, yeah, cult stuff, man. I, I, I just really loved this movie. It just stuck with me for whatever reason, that closing scene, you know, and that's what films and and books and all that kind of stuff is all about you know whether it's a scene or a quote or whatever that just sticks with you that makes it good that's what this film did and really it's one of the you don't get to see a lot of cult films that are done well this one didn't really focus on a cult but it ended with one and didn't explain shit which i think makes it more memorable and stick around in your head a little bit longer because you just don't know anything about it other than we have this abalon demon guy and this preacher dude that apparently has been impregnating 16 year olds at his party so yeah Cool film. Let me know what you think. Uh, you know, hit me up in the comments. You can, you know, hit up my email or whatever. All that stuff's available on social. You know what to do. Like, follow, subscribe. It always helps out. All that other cool stuff that we always have to say at the end of this. But I am Just James. This is the Just James Horror Review. Take care. Something, Daddy. Reverend, how about a blowing job? Yeah. About a blowing job. 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 Yeah.